0: Welcome back to the latest installment of the Music History Project. Today's episode is Industry Heroes, Luthiers. (music) Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Dale
1: and Dan Del Fiorentino, and
2: Mike Mullins.
0: All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants, and that is a program that is over 3,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of the other interviews that aren't featured, please check out our website at www.nam.org.
1: So I guess a good place to start today is getting a little uh, background information and maybe a definition on what a luthier is. So to that, we turn to our expert everything, Mike Mullins.
2: I didn't realize I was an expert, but a luthier would be someone who makes stringed instruments.
1: Usually from scratch, right? Yes. Usually
2: by hand. They usually pick out the woods and all the materials and design it themselves and some luthiers go on to have large companies that mass-produce their instruments, and other luthiers are small and do each guitar by hand.
1: Those are known as the boutique luthiers, as I recall. And interestingly enough, over the years, uh, we have been so blessed to have interviewed several really well-known and influential luthiers for the NAM Oral History Program. And that's for which we will draw our content from today, as we do on all of our podcasts. So, um, Elizabeth, tell us a little bit about, uh, maybe we can list the names of the folks that we're going to hear from in this podcast.
0: Yeah, today we're only hearing from five luthiers from our collection. Uh, That's Scott Baxendale, and uh, Bob Benedetto, and Roger Bucknall, and Wayne Charvel, and finally, Bill Collings.
1: Awesome. What a great lineup. I mean, all very influential guys all started about the same time, late 60s, early 1970s as luthiers and coming into their own and creating their own niches, which we will talk about as we go forward today. So what's our first step?
0: Uh, well, probably the first step is reminding everyone that if they're if they want to hear more content uh, from other luthiers that aren't featured, they can jump on the website and look up the keyword tag luthiers, and they're gonna see pages and pages of people that Dan has interviewed over the years that are luthiers. So make sure you check that out. But we're going to start our content today um, with kind of a, we're kind of going thematic. So we're going to try and tell a story of what it takes to be a luthier. And so the first topic is hearing from Scott Baxendale. His interview was conducted back in 2003, in the summer of 2003, and he is going to be talking to us about the, his early exposure to building um, tools, woods, and just kind of the exposure to the shop and shops in general and working with his hands.
1: So, just a quick couple of words on Scott. Scott's probably best known to most people uh, for his work uh, building Mossman guitars. He started uh, back in 1974 as a luthier and uh, a repair and restorer of instruments for the likes of Johnny Cash, Billy Gibbons, Elvis Costello, Marty Stewart, among others. And uh, just a few years ago, he started the Athens Luthier Academy. So he is actually teaching the art of making musical instruments as well. So let's get started with Scott Baxendale.
3: Well, I was born in Oklahoma. My dad was stationed in Fort Sill by Lawton, Oklahoma, and my mom was from Lawton. So they met there and, uh, And then growing up, we kind of moved around a lot in the Midwest, mostly in Kansas City. I lived there. Uh, I graduated from high school in Kansas City. And then I went to the University of Kansas, and I was trying to get a gymnastics scholarship, because I competed in gymnastics. And um, Then after college, or during college, was when I found out about Mossman Guitars. And my mom actually sent me a article out of the Sunday paper, like of a magazine supplement, like the Parade magazine. Mm. And it was an article about Mossman, about Stuart Mossman and Mossman guitars, and um, I on a whim just decided to write Stu- Stuart Mossman a letter and tell him I wanted to learn to build guitars. And at the same time I was kind of going through um kind of a breaking away from my parents, and. And I wanted to be a musician. And they said, well, you need something to fall back on. And I thought, well, this is the perfect thing. So so I wrote Stu Mossman a letter. I went down for an interview. I dropped out of college. I moved to Winfield, Kansas. And started working. Got my first paycheck. Got an apartment. Then I wrote my parents and told them I wasn't in school anymore. And um, so I started at the bottom, you know, at the, at the, you know, at the I was a low man on the totem pole, kind of. How and big just,
1: of a company was it at that
3: time? Well, this was in uh, late 74, and there were 22 employees. And it was an old um, barracks from a from what used to be a military base in World War II. It was just a wooden Quonset hut mm. that had been converted into. There were actually two of them. One was the um, the factory, and the other was where Stuart Mossman lived. Part of it was his house, and he had some more tools and and some of the machinery in the back of that and uh it was it was on a like on an airstrip like Strother Field which is in between Winfield Kansas and Ark City and it was just a little small airstrip where they flew little planes and stuff and and uh then i just started working on guitars i was making 2 dollars an hour when i started and um
1: that was big bucks, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was
3: minimum wage, <laughs> whatever minimum wage was.
1: Well, what was your thought process when you were in college and you decided that this is what you were... I mean, did you have thoughts in terms of what your degree was going to be in and that wasn't what you wanted to pursue, or you just saw an opportunity with Mossman?
3: I saw an opportunity. I was, in a, I was kind of at a crossroads because the gymnastic thing didn't really work out as far as getting a scholarship. And um, I was really, I was in a fraternity house, and me and one of my friends, we played acoustic guitars, and it was right when and Stills, and Nash, and Young were really big, and we, every day after classes, we'd get together and jam for two or three hours, and we started learning, you know, we were compelling each other to learn more and, and to become players, and we started started just, Really getting into it, and then that was around the time when uh, the Will the circle being broken album came out, and we got really heavy into that, and that led us into Doc Watson, and so we were like all excited about Doc Watson's music, and we started going to like the little folk festivals and music festivals around, and I remember going to um, Eureka Springs, Arkansas, and seeing Doc and Merle Watson, and among and uh, the Earl Scruggs Review and all that sort of stuff, and And even though we had been heavily into, you know, the rock music of the time, Jimi Hendrix and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, you know, we really got into this, you know, Americana kind of of music. And that was all about the time when I was really struggling with what I wanted to do in life. And I knew I wanted to be into music. And... But I didn't really have the... The book knowledge to like to go into the music program at the university. I mean, I didn't know how to read music or anything like that. I mean, I was just a you know a guitar player, and so so I this opportunity came along and it just it was just like a light bulb went off and said, okay, this is what I'm going to do, and uh, and it worked out. I was I went down there and I I took to it right away. I mean, I I picked up on um you know, the apt. I had the aptitude for it, I think. And I I, you know, I started in the finish department, which was kind of the worst job, you know, sanding and spraying lacquer. And after a while then well then Mossman's had a big fire and after the fire they rebuilt the factory and then I I was promoted to like an assistant shop foreman at that time and that was like the following summer and
1: that you were making two fifty.
3: Yeah, I think when I left there I was making three fifty was oh my my, my wages when I left.
0: <laughs> so it seems like a lot of these luthiers get their start not necessarily with their focus being on music and instruments, but more with working in a shop and building in general, and then they find their focus to music. Would you say that's correct or the ones you've interviewed? Absolutely,
1: yet? yes. And I think that their passion, all of them seem to be driven by their love of music as a player and saying, Well, I wonder if my guitar could do this and uh, having that uh, interest tends to lead them down the path of designing their own instruments or at least modifying the ones that they have and uh, in the case of the five guys that we're hanging out with today they all sort of had that same idea hey let me see if i can do this a little bit differently and then along the way creating their own niche. And a great example of that is the next guy we're gonna hear from is Bob Benedetto. Excuse me, he uh, started in the uh, early 1970s in the Bronx and moved down to Florida I think around 1976 and really had uh, come to his own when designing and developing guitars for jazz musicians. Among them, uh, the bebop hero to many, uh, Chuck Wayne, Johnny Smith, Kenny Burrell, uh, Bucky Pezzarella, many people like that, so, um, so Bob really uh, became sort of the jazz musician's luthier, and uh, so let's, uh, let's get our next segment up for, uh, for Bob. Lots of music,
4: that's all we had was arts of some form, painting, uh, singing, I didn't dance, I didn't sing, <laughs> did very little painting, but I was a woodworker. I would carve little miniature things when I was a kid, including little guitars. Uh, One of my uncles is a fine, classically trained painter. His brother, my other uncle, was the musician of that generation. So between the two, and my father being a cabinet maker, I had lots of music and woodworking influences.
1: So that's where the woodworking came from, is your dad?
4: Yes, that was my first exposure to cabinet making. uh, And anything really made out of wood.
1: And where did the music Take you? Did you start having a desire to play yourself?
4: Well, my uh, I, I did. Yes, um, the one of the one of the commonplace uh, occurrence in our family were weekend gatherings with the uncles playing, <laughs> good food. Um, my one uncle played mandolin. He was a violinist um, many many years as a kid. Became a mandolinist. Well, they played mandolin as well. Yeah. The other uh, uncle, the guitar player. So we had guitar and mandolin regularly. And that was my first exposure to music, live music. Uh, My uncle that played the guitar played an archtop guitar. Hmm. And that's no doubt why I had interest in going in that direction. From those uh, um, weekend uh, extravaganzas, I uh, had interest in playing the instrument, so I took lessons from my one uncle, Frank, who gave me guitar lessons started playing out in little bars and at little private affairs when i was uh, about 11 and uh, always wanted to make a guitar Hmm. at the same time as i was playing i was also very interested in making them so at that point in my life i started making little miniature guitars from scraps of wood that i would find around the table saw Hmm. in my father's little workshop and uh,
1: that's interesting. What were some of those shaped like? Your own design or did it emulate other styles?
4: Well, the first one was a copy of my uncle's guitar, which was a small body, 16 inch body Gretsch, an archtop F-hole Gretsch, Sunburst. I don't know what the model num- name was. I don't remember. But uh, anyway, that was my first mm. little miniature.
2: Next up, we're gonna hear from Roger Bucknall, who founded Filed Guitars in 1973 in Filed, United Kingdom. And this interview is from 2011.
1: One of the things that's fascinating to me about people in the music industry is their passion for music. And I wonder for you if we could trace a little bit about how that got developed.
5: <clears throat> well, it, it did develop because it didn't, um, it didn't come with me out of the womb. Because I think, first of all, I was interested mostly in making things. The music came later on. Mm. And uh, somewhere in between, this uh, a strange thing happened. I actually made a guitar before I even picked one up. When I was about nine years old, I made a guitar in my father's workshop because my dad was a mad keen DIY man. And uh, I made a guitar. And only a year or two later, did guys actually take interest in playing the things. Um, my sisters had been forced to play piano and learn violin. But I was the youngest, I was, left, I was the boy. I was the youngest and left alone to do whatever I wanted. And I decided to make things. I was never taught to play an instrument, um, but my, my sister's boyfriends all played guitar. So once I started taking an interest in guitar, I had a, a lot of people just pushing me along and showing me things. And then occasionally I'd come out of my bedroom when my sisters had the boyfriends downstairs, and I'd come out and show them the latest piece that I'd, uh, I'd learned and wait for the applause, which was, which was great. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. Um, Over the years, what's actually happened with me is the the interest in making things has been paramount. It started off that way. My dad had a workshop and I used his tools Then I started getting my own. Then I became interested in, in playing guitar. So the two things came together and I started making guitars quite seriously when I was about 13, even though I'd started a bit, a bit earlier than that. And then I got really involved in the, in the music. I used to go to the folk clubs and the first records I bought were the uh, The Shadow's Greatest Hits, which over in the UK was the thing at the time, and um, David Graham, Folk, Blues and Beyond. Um, now Although I didn't know then what was happening, but round about 1960, lots of people in the UK were taking um, inspiration for music from all over the world and uh, and transferring it to guitar, particularly steel-strung guitar, which is where my interests have have laid. Um, David Graham was taking uh, uh, jazz and blues, mostly from America, but also Far Eastern music. And putting onto the steel string acoustic guitar which is you know like it or not is really an American instrument Um, and let me see uh, John Renborn was taking um, Elizabethan music, lute music and put it onto steel string guitar. Uh, John James in Wales was taking ragtime piano music and put it onto steel string guitar with the help of people like Stefan Grossman. Um, Archie Fisher was uh, taking influence from all over the world in song and using the uh, the guitars and the complement. And there's so many other people doing the same sort of thing in this country, uh, using what really was an American instrument. Even though the history of the guitar is European, maybe even Middle Eastern, with the string guitar and the Citern and the Guitara, um There's even an English guitar and a Scottish guitar. But there's no doubt that the, the guitar as we use it nowadays has so much American influence in it. We have to call it the... in fact, it's probably your national instrument, isn't it? In the way that Scotland has the bagpipes, America has got the guitar. Um, England, what do we have? We don't have much in England, I'm afraid. <laughs> the melodeon, which isn't an English instrument. The concertina, the English concertina. What a shame. Um, but for me, these things started coming together. The, uh, the, the, the manufacturing of things, the influence of of my sister's friends, the interest in the music, and then I started to get the training that went along with all this. I went to a technical school, which gave me all sorts of technical skills in using machines. I'm using my hands in metal, in wood, uh, drawing, engineering drawing. I did a university degree in mechanical engineering. I studied uh, musical acoustics at a university as well. My only ever real job, apart from, because I I don't count guitar making as a real job. It's not a real job. It's it's still a hobby. Um, But my only ever real job was uh, designing tape recorders, mostly audio and digital tape recorders. And all this was, uh, oh, and seismology. I did a lot of work in seismology. All this was vibrations. And um, one way or another, I found ways of applying all these things in, all in one direction. And the guitar is an amalgamation of the training, my interest in timber, interest in music, interest in making things, in the people. I began to meet the people that were involved. And it all sort of um, jellies into an acoustic guitar. And I can't say I always like it or always enjoy it, but I do love it.
1: So what I really appreciate about this podcast about luthiers is that uh, our own Elizabeth Dale took the time to go through our collection of the many luthiers that we have interviewed over the years and found five really, really good ones. I'm really happy about this. Uh, So we got to hear from Scott Baxendale earlier, Bob Benedetto and Roger Bucknell just there. We have two more to go for our introduction, and uh, the next is a a really well-known luthier named Wayne Charvel, who started Charvel Guitars back in 1978. and uh, made guitars for all of the uh, hair metal bands of the era, uh, including one for Randy Rhoads, and worked very, very exclusively for Eddie Van Halen for a very long time, and uh, continues to make guitars for Eddie under the guitar company name Uh, Wayne guitars so Wayne's a great guy he's always at the NAMM show um, and it's really exciting to have the opportunity to share some of his stories and he's going to talk a little bit about uh, how there was uh, music in his house when he was growing up. My dad
6: played banjo and guitar and when I was five years old he gave me this old beat-up guitar and I started noodling around on it and uh and um we grew up we didn't have a lot of money I was an only child and I remember the first time we went to Hollywood my dad was gonna buy me an acoustic guitar we got all the way down there and he couldn't afford it and so that's kind of how I got I had such a desire to learn because my dad had musician friends come around and my dad actually played a few times with the famous banjo player Eddie Peabody which you know you probably haven't heard of anybody was he was kind of like the Chet Atkins of uh, banjo players.
1: That's right. And so, the, king of the banjo, they used to call him. Pardon me? They used to call him the king of the banjo. Exactly,
6: exactly. And so I had such a desire to play guitar that I thought, well, if I can't afford one, I'll build one. Well, finally, when I got about, I think it was 17 or so, I had a job, I went down and bought a brand new Fender Strat and a Tremolux Tweed amp. <laughs> both of them for 500 bucks. I made payments on them. <laughs> but I got real interested and in, you know, and then um, I tore it apart and painted it, which is I wish I wouldn't. Have, I wish I still had it. But but you learn from it. You know, you I tore it apart and painted it. Then other guys would see that I could paint and pretty soon I was doing metal flake and it just kind of slowly evolved into um, fixing guitars and then saying, "Well, hey, I think I can make one of these and so that, as a matter of fact, that neck that you have over there, I, I made that when I was about 12, 11 or 12. It's, it's horrible, but, and I, Alan Hamill, uh, a good friend of mine, that he worked in the custom shop at Fender for a long time. We started a little school uh, to teach uh, people how to build and repair guitars. And it was funny because you get students and they'd say, oh man, I wish I could do this, this is really cool. I said, well, you gotta start somewhere, you know. You're a baby at one time, you know nothing. And, and I, I used to show them that neck. And they'd look at it and say, this is terrible. I said, that's my first neck, you know. You gotta start somewhere. And then you just, the, the whole idea is to be persistent. If you really wanna do something, you just keep going at it, keep going at it, and you make mistake after mistake after mistake. Pretty soon, you finally get it. And then, then it becomes a joy, they, because now you can make something pretty darn nice, you know? I don't think you ever make anything perfect. But uh, so that's how I kind of got started in doing it. And, and then uh, we played in, in surf bands. Dick Dale was one of my heroes. And I didn't meet Dick Dale for years later, but we used to go to the Rendezvous ball, Ballroom and see Dick uh, Dale play. and. Uh, he was playing a Fender Strat, you know, upside down, backwards strong. and a Fender um, Showman amp with one, I didn't know at the time, that big shiny four inch cone, I didn't know that was a JBL. And the next time we saw him, he had two of those on, whoa. But he was kind of like the, I think Dick Dale was kind of like the king of heavy, or the beginning of heavy metal. He was the original heavy metal guy, he played really loud. And, and yeah, just just an amazing guy really nice guy I've since you know talked to him several times and and he's got a son that's jimmy dale who's playing guitar yeah. now but so Very there you go
0: and the final introduction we're going to be making today of these five luthiers is bill collings who was born in 1948 and we just lost in july of 2017 so sad day in the music products industry absolutely um and bill started his Own company, uh, the Collings Guitar Company in Austin, Texas, back in 1973. So we're very excited to have his story part of our collection and we're going to be hearing about kind of his roots and music in his house
1: growing up. I understand your dad was an engineer. Did you have a lot of music in your house when you were growing
7: up? He he listened to jazz, you know, big, a lot of the 30s, 40s, and 50s jazz bands. Yeah. But I wouldn't say I was into that, but they were, you know. My dad was. Did he play? No, he, he played a little piano, you know, hot rod piano or something like that. That's about it. But uh, my mother played. She was a, um, never heard her much, but she did the whole classical piano thing until she's probably 35 or so. So she knew all that. Even till a couple of years ago, she'd come over and just pick up any music and just play it <laughs> it was pretty amazing really? so She's I talented. mean yeah she had a little bit but, but I, I didn't have any talent if that's what you're getting at do I play no they did a little bit probably about the same amount not too much for me really yeah
1: so your interest was more in the engineering
7: no I was fascinated with <clears throat> the sound of the guitar you know as a early as a kid when guitar you know, I'd first start hearing it on the radio back in the 50's you'd you know that's neat you know and I guess a lot of people figured that you know it was the switch from the horn to the guitar I think you know and and rock and roll and you know hearing all that stuff kind of thrilled me and um... <clears throat> wondered what that was and thought it'd be pretty cool to be able to play but never had the opportunity until I was about 13, 12 or thirteen to actually even see a guitar in person, you know, and play it and hold it. So <clears throat> in that respect, I was a little old, I think, you know. Uh, today kids are doing it, you know, four years old and it's different. But it became accepted in those years, too, so. Where piano was probably the, the instrument of choice for the household, now guitars are everywhere and uh, so it's a little different.
1: So what do you remember about playing that guitar?
7: I remember just hearing, you know, picking a string and and just having that sound and something about it, you know, and how neat it was. I didn't know how to do the next note, you know, but just that was good, you know, and you know, and just just always liked it, you know. Never had any lessons and all that. Uh, But people in the neighborhood, like an old guy, had a couple Spanish guitars, whatever those were, and there might have been five strings on them, all rusted, but they were cheap guitars of some sort that were made in the time. And um, I would try to figure out the chords with this guy a little bit and learn some chording back then, but that was was my start. Hmm. And then probably 14 or 15, I tricked my parents into getting a guitar. I said, well, I'll just pretend I'm interested in classical music so we can get a classical guitar. You know, not knowing that I wanted a hot rod of a guitar, but that classic guitar, it was, you know, $125. And I talked them into, let's go get that guitar. So that that got it going a little bit. Trickery. I didn't care much about classical music, <laughs> but it was it was a beginning. So and that started it all. You know, I bought and traded many guitars. You know, at that when I could find something or you know learn to play a little bit and finger pick all that, but. That was the beginning.
2: So now that we've introduced all of the luthiers that we'll be hearing from in this podcast today, we're going to hear again from Scott Baxendale about his first instrument and building his first guitar in the fourth grade.
1: When did you pick up your first instrument? Was it the guitar?
3: Well, it's when I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, and then and this was in the I was in the fourth grade, huh. and I actually, funny, I actually built a the guitar then because me and three of my friends. Started a band called the Shaggy Dogs, and but it wasn't a real band. I mean, we made I made cardboard guitars with fake strings on them, and we had Beetle wigs and Beetle boots, and we went around to all the fourth grade and fifth grade classes, and we sang all these Beatle songs, but we changed all the words so that they referred to dogs, like I want to hold your paw, <laughs> and stuff like that, and. Um, so I actually built those guitars for everybody in the band. I cut out the cardboard and glued these like buttons on for knobs and stuff, and painted them and all that sort of thing. And you know, without kind of knowing that that was what I was going to be doing later,
7: funny. yeah.
3: <laughs> and uh, but I I started playing. I never really took it seriously until like maybe my last year of high school. I started to get more serious about playing. And then when I got to college and my friend that I jammed with his name was John Boyd and me and John were roommates and we he had bought a Martin D-28 and and by that time I had got my first really good guitar which was a Gibson J-185 and we started jamming all the time and you know we were just it was like what we were just compelled to do every day mm-hmm. and you know my desire then was you know just to be a musician and and be able to somehow survive doing that and so then after that the the mossman opportunity came up and i thought well this is my this is my way of doing it so
0: all right so moving on to kind of our next topic we're going to be hearing from our luthiers about building their first guitar or instrument so kind of narrowing down that focus in the shop to now producing instruments so who are we going to hear from first
2: looks like we're going to hear from bill collings again and he's going to be talking about when he decided to start making guitars and what his first guitars were like
1: and when did you start having the idea of of actually making a guitar where did that come from well
7: for me it didn't come i I, i'd made because i i didn't have a guitar before i even had that uh classical guitar I made, like, cigar box guitars, you know. I think a lot of kids did. I don't even know where the idea came from, but rubber bands on it, you know, and doing all that. And uh, I remember some contraption there, and I could actually play a little bit on it. Uh, Not much, but, you know, because I, it was hard for me to actually play a chord and then make the next notes or whatever they would be. I'm still stuck on those chords where other people be all over playing, you know, but but uh, uh, learn little bits in here at, you know, friends' houses or whatever, But and I'd play it on that little <laughs> rubber band <pen laughs> thing. So that was the first. But then um, I, after buying several guitars, like in and out of college and in that area and... Cheap ones. The best one I ever bought was a Gibson Dub Dove for two hundred and twenty-five dollars. Uh, I bought it because it was cracked in the music store, and uh, they wanted four hundred for it. And I, I told you know I'd fix it, you know, but it was cracked because it was Cleveland, Ohio, and it was dried up. But I, but I bought that guitar, and I thought that was great. It sounded awful, absolutely awful. Everybody that played it thought it was just the worst thing they ever heard. But I didn't know what that was. Why was it so bad? What were they hearing, you know? Because I didn't have much to um, compare it to. But as I got better, learned there's different tones, and bought more guitars, got real curious about it, started looking at the guitar, and I was probably 20, in that area and um, just kinda got interested in what it was and through the years, the next few years, you know, I'd may- maybe make a neck or something. I worked in a machine shop when I got out of college so I was, I could just look at something and make it or whatever and and just got into it, you know, Said, so but by the time I was 25, that's what I did. I made guitars, so um, it, it went from making metal parts to making guitars, and uh, just figured it out.
1: Mm. Now, did you make those early guitars for particular people, or just? To make them?
7: <clears throat> well, when you first get going, you'd love to have people play them, but you you make it because your your own interest gets you going, and. Uh, one problem was, if you went to a music store and you wanted to play that guitar, the people wouldn't really want to say, oh, I'm going to let you play that guitar. That's the way music stores were to me. That was kind of like, I wasn't a great musician, so I wasn't going to be handed that guitar to play, and I'd kind of look at it and walk out of the store. So. That's still true somewhat today, but not not as much as it was. I mean, there was three guitars on the wall. Oh, those were the special guitars, you, you know. So, you know what I'm getting at? <laughs> well, and, and honestly, that might have been one reason I made guitars. I wanted a good guitar, but I wasn't, you know, I didn't know how you got them. You had to pay money for those things. And then around 70... Uh, one or two this friend of mine bought a martin it was after some early john prine stuff and i think it was 72 uh somewhere in there and i'm going wow that was 400 dollars for that guitar it was pretty neat you know and oh yeah it doesn't sound good today he told me but it will and when they get old i said wow that's kind of weird what's that all about um i didn't understand that but that was the first like oh so that's what these people tell them when they're buying these guitars well actually it was probably a pretty guitar it was a little mahogany triple o from what i remember and it was probably to this day a pretty good guitar but that was in martin's boom i think when they made a lot of guitars Mm -hmm. um but twenty thousand a year or something at that time because of the folk boom but right in that period you know I was introduced to more guitars and for some reason I I was interested in fancy stuff like banjos and adornment and wondered how they did it so I would I would look around for the materials and call around and ask questions uh maybe it might have been early 70 71 hard to say but in my quest Remember I was working in this machine shop, I ran across a pattern maker and the pattern maker would supply me with wood because they used to make patterns for uh, foundries, now they they don't do it that way as much anymore. But um, I learned that and then um, what to do with this neck or how do I make it, I would ask around. You don't go to the hardware store and ask them. You had to find someone who was already tinkering with it. But uh, I ended up calling a guy named Doug Unger, who lived about 20 miles south of me in, in Brecksville, Ohio. And he started talking about how you look down the neck and the grain runs all this way and go, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, trying to figure it all out. And uh, remember that conversation, so I'm trying to tell this pattern maker how to cut this wood. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But that's all guitar making is. You just learn one thing, learn the next, learn the next. Uh, funny thing is this guy, Doug Unger, back then was a, knew a lot about banjos, did earlier banjo stuff. And this year, uh, turns out that Doug Unger did um, a bunch of inlay for us in Boston on our 40th anniversary guitars we made for Music Emporium, and it was like, wow! I haven't even talked to him about it yet. You know that this was the first guy I ever talked about instruments, and now we're doing this. So it was pretty neat. And he did a great, great job on the inlay. But that's how we learned making guitars back then. We just talked and uh, talked to other people who started doing it. So funny thing, he's still doing it and still well known at it. So. But I hadn't heard from this guy about this guy since that conversation it might have been 69 or so I can't remember exactly and here we are 40 years later and grouped up again that was kind of neat so <clears throat> that's how I got going okay and that was a pretty neat time because there was no pressure to make guitars. I, just, I was just making it happy for myself.
0: And next up we have Bob Benedetto talking about the early, some of his early shape de- designs and the wood he liked to use early in his career and the first guitar he actually made money on,
4: which is pretty important.
1: <laughs> Did you study some of the, the, the designs of other guitars early
4: on? No, I really didn't. Um, at that point in my life, I mean, I was a little kid, and that was the only guitar I'd ever seen hmm. or touched. And so uh, my, my uncle, Mike, who was the artist of the, of the family and the guitar player, um, immediately uh, saw my interest in his, in his guitar. And he, so he took me aside and showed me the, little, the guitar itself, explained how it worked, uh, vibrations and strings and wood. Hmm. And uh, yeah, I was just uh, interested in making one.
1: That's neat. One of the cool things about, I think, that experience is you didn't have what some other people create in terms of barriers. You know, with this, it was sort of approachable to you, even as a young age, that you could make this instrument. Oh,
4: it was uh, approachable. It was encouraged. Hmm. You know, it was not—because everybody in my family—my mother's side as well, not just on my father's side. Uh, They were all artistic, very, very creative people. And uh, if any one of us had interest to do whatever that may be, uh, whether it's build a tree fort in the, you know, fort, we used to call them forts, <laughs> the tree house, <laughs> in the woods, or make a guitar, we were encouraged to do so.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Did you ever have aspirations that, uh, I mean, did you have, have <clears throat> thoughts that this idea would lead to what it's led to? I knew it would. Really?
4: <laughs> Always. Really? Yeah.
1: Huh, that's amazing.
4: Yeah, yeah that's, that was, that's, exact, that's all I ever had in mind, was mm-hmm. making guitars for great players and being the number one archtop maker in the world. I mean, whether I achieve that or not is not even the issue. The point is, that was my goal. Wow, yeah. that's
1: amazing. And later on, uh, as you started developing um, this concept, what, what were the challenges that you had to overcome, like getting your raw materials, figuring out how you were going to do it differently financially? How was that all set up?
4: I, I, You know, there was no formal approach. Uh, there was, was very little thought, in fact, that went into it. Uh, all I knew was that when I wanted to make my first real guitar, not the little miniatures, but a playable instrument for myself, because at the time I was playing out, I just decided to make it. Um, Never gave it much thought. Uh, The tools, as far as I was concerned, I I had all the tools I needed, which were my grandfather's uh, cabinet making uh, planes and chisels, gouges and so on. Uh, Raw materials, I cut up the kitchen table and that became the wood, that was my source of wood for the first few guitar necks. Yeah, uh, eventually I I realized I needed sources of wood and tuning machines and cases and so on. But I would just deal with those issues as I had to. I didn't didn't worry about them. I didn't try to plan too far ahead. I just focused on making that one guitar. After the one, then I focused on making the next two guitars. And it kind of geometrically Hmm. moved on.
1: That's interesting, that first guitar,
4: That's the one that has the neck from the kitchen table? That one, and the second, third, fourth. I think about the first five or six guitars had pieces of the kitchen table, and my sister's bed. (laughs) When I ran out of wood from the kitchen table, I cut up my sister's bed and used that, Uh, my cousin's bed. And by then, I found wood sources.
1: Yeah, luckily, our
4: the whole house. uh, My family was delighted. (laughs) In fact, one of the uh, the very first the very first source of wood that I located was in in New York City. uh, H.L. Wild um, Wild Wood was the name of the company. He was one of the suppliers to John Dangelico, and I bought when I found him. I bought his last two. European sets, which is cello wood, cello making wood, and those I used for the, the two instruments and uh, and then I began to find other sources of that same wood. I also found sources for domestic woods um, and then I started buying uh, wood from europe directly i you know I one kind of had a lot of stepping stones, one led to another, hmm. and I stockpiled as I was able to uh,
1: you still have your first guitar? I do. Really? You I do you still play it?
4: No. <laughs> <laughs> I hide it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Don't want anyone to see it, huh? <laughs> when you look back at that first guitar, what what in there do you now see as sort of your trait? Is your your style? even present in that uh, first guitar, or did you have to develop that?
4: It probably is there. Even um, that, I haven't really given, given that much thought, but there's always been a, um, uh, kind of a draw, I've always been drawn towards, towards a, a delicate, um, little squiggly, curly ornamentation, but not overly done.
1: Do you remember the first uh, guitar that you made Bunny on?
4: Yeah, second one. The second one. number two. I sold it. It was hand, It was it was uh, custom made for a uh, a player in New Jersey. I made a lot of money on that guitar. <laughs> I thought I did anyway.
1: Because it was your mother's kitchen table. Right?
4: The neck. The neck was. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> and when did it uh, did your career get to the point where uh, you started getting your reputation? Uh, amongst jazz guitarists?
4: It happened fast, real fast. Again, because I was focused on the jazz guitar, every place I went I was accepted. The guitars were accepted. Even if they weren't right, really right, and even if not everybody liked them, enough of the playing community liked them enough where I was able to move forward, making progress. Um, So, not that I was an overnight success, but again, I had no competition. Um, Doors opened. When I, as I began acquiring well-known endorsers, that was a big advantage, of course. Uh, I don't know, I mean, uh, there really wasn't a particular uh, time or date when suddenly it all happened.
1: Okay, so next up, Following Bob Benedetto there is uh, Scott Baxendale. Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about uh, the beginning of his instrument building career, including the first guitar that he made. Um, And interestingly enough, um, Scott is also, um, as we're going to hear a little bit later on, uh, worked with the Mossman company and i think it's really important in this segment to hear a little bit about his uh, philosophy of building guitars because that of course became sort of the hallmark of his approach later on in his career so back to scott baxendale when was the first baxendale instrument made was that yeah that was
3: in uh 1994 maybe 93 or 94 that must have been
1: exciting
3: yeah, yeah, I, you know, it. After being out of it for a while, though, it took me a while, a few instruments, I think, to get back to where I was, and so it was, it was a struggle at first, and and I, you know, I added some some other changes to my guitars that that I didn't change when I had the Mossmans because the jigs and the fixtures, you know, for instance, like the neck joint my new, my neck joint now is like a a martin dovetail where before it was a mortise and tenon joint with the mossman guitars the heel still looks the same but it's if you take it all apart it's different on the inside and uh my truss rod's a little different uh my bridge now is a little different and and that's so
2: And last but not least, for the topic of building their first instruments, we're going to hear again from Roger Bucknall about how his first guitar influenced him to continue making guitars.
5: I remember that first guitar. It was pink. (laughs) It had flowers on it, and I had um, a fishing line for strings. And I made it for an exhibition uh, of the the Boy Scouts. Um, I don't think it actually played. But uh, something clicked somewhere, I'd made this thing and I realised you could make a noise by pulling on a piece of string basically. So I I bought, or had bought for me, a very cheap acoustic guitar. And then at one point, I must have been about 15, I'd already made another guitar by then, but I went into a second-hand shop, what we call a pawn shop. not that sort of pawn shop. It's a way you pawn something, you take it in part exchange. And there was a Gibson 335 on the wall, and it was the prettiest thing I'd ever seen. And it had bits of metal on that you could adjust and things. So it was, a, it was an engineering device as well as a musical instrument. And I loved this. And I pined for it for various weeks. And then I went back into this shop and it had gone. So I hadn't bought it. And that, that was a turning point. Because uh, up to that point, i have been quite happy with acoustic guitars, and at that point, I began to show an interest in something else. I had a bit more engineering involved with it, um, but the opportunity went, and uh, my path turned back towards the acoustic and stayed there. Um, and it's just the way that my life went in uh, meeting people. I began to meet musicians, watching them at the back of the club. Um, and then meeting them bit by bit, helping to organise a folk club, uh, booking the artists, talking to them backstage. And the first time somebody actually uh, said, ''You made that? Will you make me one?'' ''Oh, wow, yes.'' (laughs) And that's more or less the way it's still going on, what, 50 years later. Um, ''Will you make me one?'' ''Yeah, Okay. yeah.''
0: Next, we're going to be moving into hearing from the guys talking about starting of their kind of quote-unquote official careers within the luthier industry. And first up, we have Scott Baxendale, as uh, Dan mentioned earlier, and he's going to reflect on joining Mossman and finding his direction while he was a college student.
3: I saw an opportunity. I was in a, I was kind of at a crossroads because the gymnastic thing didn't really work out as far as getting a scholarship. And... Um, I was really, I was in a fraternity house and me and one of my friends, we played acoustic guitars and it was right when Crobs is Stills and Nash and Young were really big. And we, every day after classes we'd get together and jam for two or three hours and we started learning, you know, we were compelling each other to learn more and, and to become players. And we started, started just really getting into it and then that was around the time when, uh, the, Will the Circle Being Broken album came out, and we got really heavy into that, and that led us into Doc Watson, and so we were like all excited about Doc Watson's music, and we started going to like the little folk festivals and music festivals around, and I remember going to um, Eureka Springs, Arkansas, and seeing Doc and Merle Watson, and among and uh, the Earl Scruggs Review and all that sort of stuff, and. And even though we had been heavily into, you know, the rock music of the time, Jimi Hendrix and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, you know, we really got into this, you know, Americana kind of, kind of music. And that was all about the time when I was really struggling with what I wanted to do in life. And I knew I wanted to be into music. And... But I didn't really have the... The book knowledge to like to go into the music program at the university. I mean, I didn't know how to read music or anything like that. I mean, I was just a, you know, a guitar player. And so, so I, this opportunity came along and it just, it was just like a light bulb went off and said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And, uh, and it worked out. I was, I went down there and I, I took to it right away. I mean, I, I picked up on, um you know, the apt. I had the aptitude for it, I think. And I I, you know, I started in the finish department, which was kind of the worst job, you know, sanding and spraying lacquer. And after a while then well then Mossman's had a big fire and after the fire they rebuilt the factory and then I I was promoted to like an assistant shop foreman at that time and that was like the following summer and
1: so you were making 250
3: yeah i think when i left there i was making 350 was my 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 wages when i left (laughs) what's really
1: interesting to me about the way elizabeth has put this podcast together is uh These segments of each of these five luthiers talking about the development of their careers and uh, we're moving on from Scott Baxendale to Wayne Charvel and uh, what's great is these these early days of of these guys careers and how they got one job that led to another that led to a reputation so uh, let's hear from Wayne Charvel when I look at your uh, the neck that's in the museum down there Mm -hmm. I don't really see it the same way you do. I, I yeah. see it as, wow, for a young kid, you certainly have yeah. a lot of ideas that yeah. were original, yeah. because necks weren't being made like that.
6: No, no, thank God, right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, I don't know. It's, and then, then I worked, I um, after I got married, I quit playing in bands, and um, a couple of my good friends at Fender, knew that I was painting guitars, so Fender hired me to do all the out-of-warranty repairs because they didn't want to take guys off the line when a guitar came in scratched up and take them off and stop production to, to refinish and sand them down. So I got all that, so I started um, uh, painting and refretting necks and painting, uh, you know, refinishing necks. And then they found out I could cover amplifiers, so I started covering those Fender Rhodes pianos that came in all scratched up. So it was great for me, I was swamped. And I'd go down to Fender at least twice a week, and then Steve Bollinger, who passed on, um, real good friend of mine, he worked there for a long time. Then uh, he worked for Jackson for a while, then he went back to Fender. He went in the custom shop, really a, a brilliant guy. Um, he would he love it when I come over because it gave him an excuse kind of to goof off for a little bit, and he would take me over to the main plant, and I'd get to meet everybody, Babe Simone and all those guys, and watch them make Fender guitars and learn how they painted them. They were using I was using lacquer, nitrocellulose lacquer. They were using Easy Buff, polyester from Dan Edwards. And uh, so I learned a lot just by watching them. They used overhead pin routers. Everything was made, you know, by hand. It was they didn't have CNC machines in those days, and um, it was just just great to see all those guitars. And it was just so exciting, you know, so motivating. And then I, I thought, you know, these these fender guitars are cool, but I bet they'd really, you know, look great in exotic woods. So I as I started getting some exotic wood. And then I, my junior high school buddy Lynn Ellsworth, taught him how to make guitars. He opened a company called Boogie Bodies in Washington, did up all the, did the tooling up, and made a few guitars. And then we had um, um, the guy from um, his name was Boffin, I believe from uh, Deep Purple came by one day. And Fender was sending me all these rock and roll stars. And so we started so I started building wild guitars. Alan Rogan that, that worked for um, Paul McCartney for a while. He came over and bought some stuff from us. And so the name kind of got out there. Because in those days, you have to remember, nobody was taking a Fender guitar and putting a humbucking pickup in it. Nobody was flattening the fingerboard and putting jumbo frets like we were. So we were like ahead of everybody. And I, I did it because I worked nightclubs for so long and realized that those Fender half-volt pickups didn't cut it. I wanted to get that sustained. So he put a Gibson pickup, humbucking's about a volt and a half, and give you that a lot of ring and sustain. So I learned, you know, to do those, and guys loved them. So I thought, you know, the next step, let's make bodies, and the next step was make necks. Hooked up with Dave Schechter, who's a real genius, he taught me a lot of things. And Dave and I made a 100 bodies in one weekend at his shop in Reseda. Uh, and that's how I learned how to make bodies. And then it was great. It was really a lot of fun. And uh, Dave, since then, sold Schecter. I, I think uh, a fellow from Japan owns it now. But uh. So the, the times were really exciting and, and really ripe. And had I had a little bit more um, business savvy, I could have really turned it into something bigger. And, and what happened, various companies saw my ad in the magazine all the time, and they start coming out with parts made offshore, and that killed the parts business. Because they, they could sell them for half the price. And so the only thing that I could do that they couldn't do was make guitars. So I thought, okay, they're gonna steal the parts business, that's okay. That's life in the, in the big city. I'll make guitars and that's that's how that thing came about it was almost everything's kind of a blessing in life but you don't realize it till the a- afterwards it was a blessing they stole the parts because it got me into making guitars otherwise i'd have probably stayed just making parts you know not that there was anything wrong with that but it's, it's more fun making guitars <laughs> you know and then i Seymour duncan um, um, he and i are old old friends and um I sold him, I think, his first drill press, and um, so we'd buy pickups. We still buy pickups from Seymour, and uh, you know, I remember when Larry DiMarzio got started and Seymour and all those guys. They've done exceptionally well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, nobody was doing aftermarket parts. Hmm. I was the only guy. My first part was a, and the way this came about, Nick Hannich from Hannich Music. Um, Came down and said, "Can you make some square jack plates for the Gibson Les Paul? Because you know the original ones are plastic, and they constantly break. So I made I made 11 of them by hand, because I was kind of a, a you know a halfway machinist at the time too. So I made those by hand, and I got to thinking, you know, if he wants these, and he ordered some more, I thought maybe I'll maybe I'll put these on the in the Guitar Player magazine." At that time, Bud Eastman, who we became friends, he's no longer with us, but he owned Guitar Player Magazine at that time. And so I put an ad in for the jack plates, and they were $2.50. And then I thought, let's make a, a tremolo bar, vibrato bar, for the Strat out of stainless steel, because it's four times as strong. Because those were always breaking, and you have to get in there with an easy out, try to get them out. So I made those, and I had a few other parts. And it still wasn't only bringing about $100, uh, $200 a month. And I said, I don't even want to mess with this. So I asked my wife, do you want some extra money? You, you do the correspondence and do the shipping, and I'll, I'll have the parts made. And then I thought, you know what? Why not add pick guards? So we, we, we did brass pick guards, chrome pick guards, gold-plated pick guards. And uh, pretty soon, we got a line of parts. Before you know it, we're doing like 16, dollars 18000 a month just in parts. And we added bodies and then necks and so forth. and So it just kind of, you know, bloomed uh, after that. So,
1: now what was the manufacturer's response to what you were doing?
6: You mean like Fender? Yeah. Um, they didn't seem to mind that we made aftermarket parts. I was still doing refinish work. They were so happy to have somebody refinish their guitars because they had a, I'd go down there and get eight or nine guitars a week that customers would bring in, and they had that polyester you could not use paint remover to get it off, you had to sand it off. We used heat guns after a while to do it, but you had to watch the end grain the wood had split, so um, we made a few mistakes on that, but um, they were so happy to have me do that, and plus I could recover amps, um, then later. Uh, went in partners with Ray Ortega and I came up with the idea let's come out with tweed guitar cases again because nobody's nobody's doing those and that was just when the the vintage retro thing was starting to kind of blossom so we came out with those and we did pretty well and we got knocked off uh, but we had the material so I was covering the old 410 basements and shooting lacquer on it and uh, the original Fender amps, used proxylene, which was basically lacquer. Most guys think it's lacquer, but it had something else in it. And they'd shoot it on and sand it off, uh, sand it and then shoot it so it had a smooth finish. And so we did, I did tons of those basements. And, and you know, all the, the, the all, anything that was tweed, uh, except cases, we didn't, I didn't cover cases, but. So we had the, we had the original cases uh, from the guy, Sid uh, Handler. Was the guy that from uh, it's 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 G and G quality case now. Ben Ben Germain owns that, and we still buy cases from him. Is that right? Yeah, great
2: company. One thing that's definitely important when creating an instrument and starting a brand out is developing your own style. And we're going to hear from Roger Bucknell on how he accomplished that.
5: Like nearly everybody else, I I do use the X brace, and I I acknowledge Martin for that. Um, absolutely, without Martin guitars most modern guitar makers wouldn't be working. Um, On the wall, just on the other side of the workshop here, I have a little row of of guitar soundboards that I've made over the years, and I've rescued from the guitars that have become damaged. And you can see the progression of the the, uh, bracing. In my early days, I started with part of an X-Brace and part of the Spanish fan system, and then began to discover that this did or didn't do certain things and modified it. And I moved along the lines of lattice bracing double x this is all in the 1970s and began to install what was the uh, the forerunner of um, a frame which is two strong legs braced up against the tension of the strings which has been used to, used elsewhere but you know it's something i started using in the 70s um, and bit by bit i've come back round to Although I'm still maintaining the, the concept of the a, a frame in the top, it's not. I didn't invent the word A frame, that was George Loudon. But uh, the the shape there is something that I've always been strongly allied with. Um, keeping the X brace from Martin, and currently quite a lot of what other people call the tone bars, I don't like the idea of tone bar because I think every brace is a tone bar. They're not just two or three bits of wood glued there to make tone. That's not the way I I see it at all, complete fallacy. But uh, there's lots of similarities between uh, my bracing and Martin, apart from where I reinforce from the neck down just past the sound hole. That's that's me. Um, That's engineering. And I think if if the makers of old, luthiers, I don't like the word luthier, but if the makers of old had been Isambard Kingdom Brunel, um, an engineer, they would have changed the concept of the bracing of the guitar where it really counted in those weak points. But they've got the soundboard structure elsewhere pretty good. And the difference between mine and Martin and other people that use the the X-Brace is the way I shape the braces. And I like to shape them not just in scalloped forms, because I think that's just a very hit and miss. All you're doing there is taking mass and stiffness away, and allowing volume and bass. Every time you take wood away, you take mass away from the bracing of the guitar. You're encouraging volume, and you're encouraging bass response. You're doing no good at all to anything else. You're doing nothing for the middle and treble. You're probably destroying it, and you're doing nothing for balance between the tones. So a simple scalloping in the middle, which is the way many makers go, is uh, is a bit of a red herring. I like to shape the uh, the braces rather more intelligently, I don't don't mean that badly, but it's a word I would use, with more thought. And um, the shape of the bracing comes out more like a like a baseball bat or like a, a fishing rod or a billiard cue. All these things that are based on vibration. The contact between the club and the ball, it's vibration. And it goes back to where I have a, a pretty close understanding. I've actually made cricket bats, I've made fishing rods. Upstairs, I have the willow clefts for, um, for um, bats, I have the, the split cane for fishing rods. I've, I've been into all this. And the way that you can transfer a large amount of energy at one end of a piece of wood and not absorb the shock at the other end is the same sort of logic that we're using in a Uh, Billy Q, cricket bat, table tennis, etc. It's the same physical theory as in an acoustic guitar. You try to convert a small vibration into a big vibration. The guitar is a transformer. It's not an amplifier. You're trying to transform the vibration of a very small, very thin metal string into something you can hear with a human ear. And you do that by attaching it to a big, soft, sheet of material which vibrates very easily. That's the structure of a guitar to make you hear the sound of the string amplified. Mm. Um, But to maintain the physics and the engineering of the guitar, we have to get inside and build this structure, build this bridge inside, which allows the soundboard to support that pull of the strings up to 200 pounds for a lifetime and not fall apart. And for the whole of that lifetime from day one, it has to sound good. If it doesn't sound good on day one, no one's gonna buy it. It's no use buying a guitar thinking, that will be good in 10 years' time. Um, you know, We might be dead. It has to sound good, which is a bit of a problem. Because really, most sensible guitar makers know their guitar is going to get better with age. And they really would like to sell it when it's 10 years old. But then, it's not the way it works. We have to make a living for that 10 years.
0: And finally, rounding out this segment, we're going to hear from the late Bill Collings on how his company progressed and grew.
7: It was a slow... And really painful process. Every person that we'd hire, be it the first one, um, which was 1987, would be hard because, oh, I could do that job, but here we are one-on-one and we're doing half as much or much less with the first person. So you'd have to hopefully give that guy something to do while you could do something and answer the phone and take care of him at the same time which spreads you pretty thin and um what happens is you get a couple of guys and then they take it starts to take a little pressure from that situation um, and it gets a little better and then maybe a little more it gets a little better and then it all falls apart then you have to go fix it, group it, and make it redo it. So that's the way what we did. The thing was Bruce, who was actually my second employee. He's here today. Was really a hard train, just oh, awful. But when he got it, he really did. And uh, I learned. I learned maybe Bruce was a hard train because I was a bad trainer. You know, don't know but there's a little of all of that you know but but now when bruce trains he, he you know he knows both sides of it you know and he gets a little better and he might leave a lot for granted so these are that's the hardest part it's how you train it but what is the question like how how did it grow yeah okay well it kept, it kept being that way, you know, like we'd get a guy. You, you, you try to balance what you're making to what you sell. Well, that was over the, all over the map because we didn't know what we would sell. And it was Bruce and I, and I think one more guy, and we got a call from a store Maybe it's oh maybe it's George Gruen okay that would have been eighty six and eighty seven and uh, we were going to make guitars uh, and he wanted to make guitars in his name Gruen I said why don't we put Collings Gruen because now nah, nobody knows you they know me and uh, they wouldn't sell with your name on it. I said oh okay well how about if I put my name inside ah oh, I need a you could sign the label okay so uh, he. He said, we'll make 25 guitars. I said, okay, I'll make them. And I uh, started making these guitars. And we'd call up, so we're shipping this guitar. <laughs> we ship us the money so we could eat, you know, all this sort of stuff. This kept going. And um, anything you do, we needed that paycheck period that day or that week or the week before or whatever it was to keep it going and every week it seemed like there'll be no week tomorrow it's not we didn't have work work lined up but hopefully by the end of the week something would happen because now we're trying to roll we're not trying to just make one and sell it we're trying to say let's make one and keep it going. And we had no buffer. So the buffer was right to the store or right to the person, that was it. So this 25 orders was a pretty good deal. Because wow, we could, we could just kind of learn how to make these guitars. And that's what Bruce and I did mm-hmm. together. And I think we got up to about number seven. And, and uh, I said, George, I'm gonna send this guitar uh, tomorrow, can you send us money? He goes, I don't have any money. I said, what? Because yeah, I just paid my taxes, and I got all screwed up, and I'm out of money. I said, but your name's on these guitars. Wow, what am I going to do? Well, I don't know. And I was pissed, okay, because I put all my eggs in one basket. At that same time, there was an earthquake. It was the San Francisco earthquake, I think it was 10th of October or something like that. Right, 89. 89. Yeah. That might have been when that was. And uh, I remember it because we're, shit, okay. I said, oh, cool, maybe Santa Cruz. Maybe Santa Cruz lost all their guitars up there. Good, you know, because that was my, my rival. But uh, um, I got a call. I said, Bruce, we'll just rip that name off those guitars and we'll re-inlay it, we'll put my name on it, we'll try to sell those guitars. I got a call from George in the morning. He said, I'm really sorry, I borrowed the money from my parents and uh, I'm sorry that I did that and I was wrong. I went, wow, this guy has integrity. After all, you know, I thought, i glad I didn't rip those out, and it kept going. So we did like 25 guitars. It was a great relationship. We had a good time. But it was great advertising for me. He couldn't give those guitars away, but I sold guitars because of those guitars. So that helped out a lot. It gave me a lot of credibility. And um, <clears throat> at that same time, we took on um, a store called Griffin out in. Uh um, San Francisco, or Palo Alto. And they ordered, they said, well, how do we order guitars? I said, just order a guitar. Okay, good, okay, we'll send them that guitar. And a couple weeks later, send them the guitar. and goes, oh, okay, well, how do we order another guitar? Just order the guitar. So that's kind of how we got going. And um, the word of mouth uh, helped a lot. And George Gruen probably most of all helped more than probably anybody in that Credibility stage, you know, and um, I figured we sold twelve guitars to Palo Alto, and uh, it'd be over. Then we moved to another city. I didn't know how you did it. Oh, okay, we'll do that, and we'll go. They'll be full of guitars, you know, at that time. Little I know that next year they did fifty guitars. I said, next year fifty guitars. I go, that's one a week, you know. I'm going, you know. Well, we took another little store on. It would have been George, you know, or someone. I forget who or where. And little things like that just kind of allowed us to balance it and keep moving.
0: All right. So we're going to round out the podcast here. And our last segment is, I think, very fitting to end. And that's we're going to have both uh, Bob Benedetto and Roger Bucknall reflect on some lessons they've learned and give us some advice that they have from their long careers as luthiers. So if you are out there thinking, you know what? I hate my job. I'd like to build guitars or other stringed instruments. Listen to these guys and maybe you can be successful. Who are we gonna hear from first? Mike?
2: Looks like Bob Benedetto first, followed by Roger Bucknell.
4: I think the the biggest lesson I learned early on was I I used uh, hide glue. There were different glues of course, different wood glues available to us. The industry standard these days, and which has been for a number of years, is a Franklin tight bond. It's an alphabetic resin glue that you can buy it in a hardware store. It's great stuff. Well, at one point in time, I was influenced, in the early years, I was influenced a lot by violin making. They use high glue to assemble a violin. Because high glue reacts violently to moisture and climate change. By violently, that's an advantage. You can you can open up a glue joint on a violin. You can separate the entire instrument uh, with but with the right probe and pull, or with heat and moisture, the glue softens or it becomes brittle, depending on how you want to approach it. And you can break that joint. Violins are made to be disassembled. Guitars are not made to be disassembled. So early on I thought I was doing the right thing by gluing the necks to the bodies using hide glue Uh, that wasn't so bad I didn't have any difficulty there because my joints were so good that no problem okay but I also glued the fingerboards to the neck that's where I learned the lesson gluing the fingerboards to the neck with hide glue well on about six guitars I did that and I was shipping them out of state to hot climates And the climates on occasion, especially if the player wasn't really careful where he put his guitar, maybe in the trunk of a car for a few days while he's traveling down the desert, and it got so hot that the glue would soften and the joint would begin to slip or the fingerboard would begin to peel away from the neck. And so there were problems there. I uh, was made aware of that, took the guitars back, of course, and, and fixed them with the proper glue and that was that. That was probably the biggest lesson I ever learned. No no catastrophe, it was an easy fix.
5: I don't talk to many other guitar makers, I'm good friends with Stefan Sobel and I, I keep in touch with a few others um, but the ones I do speak to, the ones that have been doing it for a while, we all come to the same conclusions in some ways anyway. You get a feel of what's going on as soon as you pick the piece of wood up. Even the handling of it, just the touch of the fingers on the wood gives you an idea of what that wood has in inside it so you're starting to think oh this is a nice piece of wood and then you'll look at it and you'll think "Uh, it's a bit ugly no one's going to buy that what a shame you have no choice to put it down yeah um and that that's the way you start off with the building of a guitar but it has an interesting effect because if ever you want to build a guitar for yourself or you want to build a guitar to take to the pub at night or play in sessions or maybe to make for a child who's going to kick it around then you might well go back to that piece of ugly wood I can use you now you know I can make something out of you and uh, I'm gonna prove that I knew what I was talking about and you will make a guitar out of all the ugliest bits of wood um, that you could come across something with a, a knot in the middle of it or that's been split or you'd you'd made it a bit too thin but you don't want to throw it away you know this sort of thing and every guitar maker uh, well, with any experience at all that I've ever spoken to, has always got a story of that guitar he made out of all the junk, and it was the best guitar I'd ever made. Um, so it's a big mixture. Um, you can, Sometimes you can do this with a different uh, uh, line of reasoning. You can deliberately make a guitar out of all the bits of wood that you don't want to use. You can make a guitar out of the bits of the wood that you think will not make a good guitar. The bit of wood that maybe it looks good but you know it's dead. Or maybe it is dead and it looks horrible. All these things, all the bits of, bits of wood you discard it for one reason or another. You don't want to throw them away. Guitar makers hate wasting wood. It's awful wasting a piece of wood. You know, we get a box full of scrap. What can we use it for? Um, You don't like wasting it. So you make a guitar out of all these awful pieces, and lo and behold, it's the best guitar you've ever made. And every guitar maker's got stories like this. And the other side of the coin, of course, we've all got stories as well of making guitars out of the best ever pieces of wood, the best the piece of wood you've paid a fortune for, that looks fantastic, lovely tap-tone, stiff as anything you like, and it comes out and it's a terrible disappointment. And that usually happens when, in my experience, the customer has been putting too much on you, He's be saying to you, "I want the best ever guitar." Well, we do that every time we make a guitar. We're trying to, we're doing the best we can. We don't turn up every day and say, "I'm going to make a half good guitar today." You know, it's always we're trying to do the best we can. It's useless a, guitar, uh, a customer coming and saying, "I want your best ever guitar." It, it can't work. All you're going to do is try to make things a bit lighter or use the most nice-looking piece of wood, or the most expensive piece of wood, and none of those are factors in the production of a good guitar. Uh, the only real factor is the, the the process of the guitar being made from fifty years ago, a hundred years ago, to the present day, the development of the design of the guitar and the way it's been done by the people doing it. That's what puts it all together. Um, You've decided that you want to be, the soundboard to be 2.9 millimeters thick. You don't want to make it 2.8 or 3, unless you've got a real reason for doing so with that particular piece of wood. You've decided you want to use an x brace. you've decided you want to use a certain sort of joint. What more can you do when a customer comes to you and says, I want the best ever guitar? Well, that's what I'm gonna do anyway. You know, it's, um, it's fascinating. There's a lot of human interaction in this. And also, of course, the customer asked to pick his favourite guitar from a range of guitars on show. One person will go for guitar A, and he won't like guitar B at all. Yet your second customer will be completely the other way around. Mm. It's um, psychoacoustics again. You try and make the guitars the best you can, and then you try and match the guitar to the customer. That's the best way of doing it. And if you have a, uh, a musician come through a door and spot a guitar has happened a few times with me from the other side of the room, and the guitar is calling, for, calling to him. Martin Carthy tells this story. Dick Gotton tells this story. They see a guitar, and they say it was shouting at him. And they go to it, and they pick it up, and they bond. The relationship might be difficult for a few years, but they bond instantly, and that guitar stays with them for a lifetime. Um, and that's fantastic. You know, I love it when that happens. It's the, the personal relationship not just with me and the wood, but with the artists that's playing it. And I'm so glad to have become so good friends with so many of the people I'm making guitars with. And um, when, when we leave here today, we're going home with a, a wonderful guitarist to come to stay with us for a few days. It's a young lad called Tristan Hume, Lovely guitarist. And we're going to spend some social time with him. And uh, next time Eric Bibb comes across, we promise to get together and spend a day or two. It's, uh, it's the other side of the coin, but it's part of the music.
1: Well, I'm really delighted that we had the chance to hear from five of our Luthier friends, uh, all from the NAM oral history collection. Thank you for joining us. And a, uh, just a last comment from Mike about, uh, those who would like to leave a comment and, or a suggestion for us.
2: Yeah. If you're on iTunes, uh, you can head over to the ratings and review tab and, uh, rate our podcast out of five stars and leave us a review telling us what you like tell us what you want to hear about and if you're listening somewhere else maybe like soundcloud you can always just leave a comment right on the podcast
0: thanks bye
2: bye
0: dan you gonna say bye
2: Bye bye